Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and a very happy birthday to the United States Air Force. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts uh, on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Uh, Sam, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program uh, and a very happy new year. Shana Tova to you. Thank you very much. Uh, and today's show is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Sam, an action-packed uh, week uh, with, um, you know, obviously Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un uh, meeting uh, with a lot of nuclear messaging in the background of that. Strikes on Sevastopol, Surovikin uh, resurfacing resur- uh, and Rosman uh, Khadirov uh, and his uh, outlook, natural or otherwise, uh, as we uh, get into much more of a Stalinist approach to Putin's Russia. Um, first, walk us through. What does the Putin-Kim, uh, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of commentary on what it changes and what it doesn't. There was a lot of nuclear messaging uh, involved uh, in that. What are the takeaways, and does this alliance um, change the dynamic of the battlefield in Ukraine or allow Russia to act up otherwise around the world? Ultimately, Or North Korea to act up on Russia's behalf, I should say. Ultimately, this meeting served to reinforce Russia's alliances. Uh, Russia is taking significant measures to demonstrate to its uh, allies around the world, like Iran, like China and North Korea, that it is still a viable partner. Um, And this meeting resulted in a um, potential transfer of a large number of key artillery shells and munitions to the Russian military. Uh, Artillery is used in absolutely um, enormous quantities on both sides. And so Russia needs to replenish its stocks and uh, North Korea operates a lot of Soviet and Russian legacy systems. Therefore, a lot of specs and measurements are basically identical. But again, this serves to reinforce uh, Russia's partnership and a demonstration that it is a viable international partner. It is a viable security partner. And again, because North Korea operates a lot of Soviet legacy systems, there's also potential for military-to-military cooperation and potential Russian exports to North Korea. Russia is also learning from its partners how to exist in a uh, sanctioned regime or how to operate under a significant pressure from international sanctions. Iran has signaled that it has a lot to teach Russia and Russia is willing to learn. Obviously, North Korea has been sanctioned for quite a while, yet its defense industry is uh, rather thriving with the help of many international partners. And so Russia wants to learn from North Korea how to essentially evade sanctions and how to be uh, successful in the face of enormous international pressure. Um, Does, you know, the United States has, for example, said uh, that, you know, North Korea would be subject to greater punishments. Uh, I don't even know how that's uh, possible. Russia has already been helping uh, the North Koreans develop their missile force uh, in terms of Russian technology that we've seen and their capability as well as the Iranian ones. So obviously the Russians are you know, circumventing any sanctions that exist. China continues to do robust trade with North Korea despite, uh, global, uh, despite uh, sanctions. Ultimately, if Vladimir Putin decides to share better nuclear technology or missile technology with North Korea, 
does, does anything change anywhere, anyhow? Well, we also have to remember that North Korea is also helped significantly by China. So it doesn't exist in isolation, even though it, it presents itself sort of um, as, a, uh, as a country that's isolated by United States and U.S. allies. Uh, I think the most important element here is, once again, a country that is supposed to be weak, a country that is not supposed to be um, active on the international scene, uh, like North Korea isn't supposed to be really um, offering anything to its international partners. It's not supposed to have a viable arms industry. It's not supposed to export its weapons and knowledge. And yet that's what North Korea does. So sanctions have a powerful effect, but ultimately sanctions have a limited effect for countries willing to invest a lot of resources in circumventing them. And this is what Russia is learning right now from countries like Iran and countries like North Korea, how to be a, an active and viable uh, state in the face of international pressure from United States, the West and other partners. Um, uh, let me uh, take you to uh, the um, strikes. So as uh, Putin and uh, Kim uh, were meeting, uh, there was an extraordinary strike by the Ukrainians on uh, Sevastopol. Walk us through what the Ukrainians did, how they did it and the meaning of the attack. Ukraine used missiles and some of the drone boats to attack a um, Russian naval base in Sevastopol. And one of the biggest targets was the dry dock. The attack resulted in a destruction of a Russian submarine, the Kilo-class Rostov-on-Don submarine, as well as a landing ship. It also resulted in significant damage to the dry dock itself. So this is the first time that um, Russia lost um, wartime assets while they were actually um, essentially um, in the dry dock, uh, while they were not really taking part in any military action. Uh, each naval ship loss is significant for the Russian Navy, and uh, it will take some time to not only decommission the destroyed ships, but also to repair the dry dock. And perhaps the attack on the dock itself is a more significant investment in limiting Russian capabilities. Once again, Russia loses naval assets to a country does not that doesn't really have an operational navy. Uh, once again, Russia has to spin this in... In, in the best way possible to essentially downplay the significance of this attack. Uh, in the weeks and months prior to the strike, Russian government was discussing acquisition of more naval vessels and submarines. So we should probably expect this attack to be downplayed and not really uh, figure too much in the news. The strike was very sophisticated in the sense that it targeted very specific assets in very specific locations. The fact that Russia isn't going to have a, a naval landing ship and a submarine in the Black Sea significant, since the Black Sea fleet is not very large to begin with. And so this is a major victory for the Ukrainian military and a very significant black eye, not just for the Russian government, but for the military and the Navy, of course. Um, and there was an amphibious ship that was damaged as well, right? Amphibious ships have been taking quite a beating uh, at the hands That's of the correct. Ukrainians. That's correct. Um, and, and what are, right, it was a sophisticated attack how exactly did they execute it? What do we what do we know, right? Because sometimes we think it's missiles uh, that did the job, but we find out that it was sea drones uh, that did it, as, as we discussed last week, right? I mean, you 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 at the time, I remember mentioning, uh, you know, bafflement on why a major uh, Ukrainian uh, naval attack uh, had failed. Uh, um, uh, you know, why those drones had washed up, and we find out that it was Elon Musk turning Starlink off. What are what are how did how did the Ukrainians execute this and how are the Ukrainians increasingly 
um, executing these long-range deep strikes, right? Where now folks in Moscow are grumbling more uh, about the nature of the attacks. We obviously have to emphasize Ukrainian intelligence services for for conducting their uh, appropriate reconnaissance and identification of targets. This attack probably had some assistance from international partners as well. But we also have we also have to give credibility to Ukraine's own domestic industry because part of the attack was carried out by unmanned surface vessels as well. And Ukraine has at least five different types of unmanned surface vessels and a separate unit devoted to that. In other words, in that sense, Ukraine is well ahead of the Russians who've bragged before the war that they've had, they have that they have multiple um, uh, military underwater and surface vessel projects in the works and uh, that they're going to be utilizing this technology. So the real question here is uh, the allocation of resources. And again, um, what is more important uh, in this strike to take out and damage Russian ships or to take out some of the infrastructure that enables the war. And therefore, uh, the attack on the dry dock and the damaging of the dry dock was probably more of a long-term threat to the Russian Navy and the military than the loss of these naval ships. Um, let's uh, go to uh, personalities, because uh, Putin's Russia is becoming increasingly Stalinist, uh, where commissars are uh, va uh, vanishing. Uh, I mean that uh, slightly as a joke, uh, or maybe not, uh, right in the wake of the Prigozhin uh, assassination. Uh, there's a lot of questions about what happened to the former chief of uh, the Russian Air Force, uh, General Lieutenant General Surovikin, who was uh, heading the special military operation. Uh, he was sort of seen, I guess, as a collaborator or investigated for collaboration with Prigozhin. Uh, walk us through why he showed up in Algeria and what the message there is. Well, it's important to remember that some of the key Russian military leaders can be demoted and shuffled around, but uh, it isn't always easy to simply get rid of them. And so it is just a lot more useful to maintain an individual like Surovikin uh, in um, in the MOD ecosystem, where even if he is not directly impacting how uh, forces are fighting in Ukraine, his knowledge and his experience can still be utilized. And so when he popped up in Algeria discussing military to military cooperation. This was an important step. Algeria is one of the biggest Russian arms importers. Algeria imports billions of Russian weapons and systems. Uh, there's also a possibility of repair and production of some of the Russian military assets in country. And so um, engaging a viable ally is important for the MOD. We already mentioned that in the context of Russia-North Korea meetings. So Algeria is a key ally in Africa one of the biggest importers of Russian military hardware and, and probably will continue to import Russian military hardware. So if Sarovikin is is to be removed directly from participation in the war, again, his background and experience can still be helpful and therefore he is in Algeria. When it comes to Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, he has been rumored to be in a coma, has been rumored to be dead, he's been rumored to be very sick. There's evidence that he may not be dead or sick, that he's in a hospital undergoing treatment. Uh, but issues around his health has um, have been discussed for quite a while. And uh, with the removal of Prigozhin, Ramzan Kadyrov really remains the only semi-independent leader with background um, and history of potentially challenging Russia. Again, uh, the Kadyrov family was installed in Chechnya after Russians took over in the Second War of 1999 to 2000, almost 23 years ago. And the Kadyrovs were given a free hand in Chechnya in exchange for fealty to uh, the Russian Federation and to the Kremlin. And um, 
when Kadyrov took over from his father, he maintained loyal to Putin. But Chechens remain a viable military force. They are part of Rosgvardia, the National Guard. They are part of uh, special troops that um, assisted in advances and the battles around Bakhmut and other areas. They are feared in Russia. And again, even if, if, if Kadyrov and his Chechens are loyal to the Kremlin now, that's not a guarantee that they're going to be loyal in the near future. The Chechen region and the Caucasus is a hotbed of all kinds of inter-ethnic activity and competition, and, che and Chechnya is right in the middle of it. Um, so the fact that Kadyrov is sick may be more indicative, not just of his own health habits, but possibly a message from the Kremlin that no amount of independent activity is to be tolerated in any way, shape, and form. And a leader of, uh, of the people who, uh, whose warlike nature is so significant and so helpful in Russia's uh, prosecution of, an, of its invasion against Ukraine is a, uh, is a is potentially viable competitor. Uh, Kremlin took significant steps to placate Kadyrov. He was elevated to the rank of, I think, one-star general uh, shortly before the mutiny. Um, with Prigozhin. And so, uh, again, it's not clear exactly what Kremlin thinks about it, but um, there's probably not that much love left for for Kadyrov um, at this point in time. Um, and let me uh, ask uh, a quick uh, update. Uh, we uh, spoke uh, about the massing of uh, Azerbaijani forces on the Armenian border, and there was a lot of uh, interest uh, in that. Uh, and a sense uh, that we could even be getting into a great power war involving Iran, Russia, uh, and and Turkey. Where are we on that, given that you track it pretty closely? Well, no military hostilities have broken out, thankfully. Uh, both sides are still um, pulling up a lot of military hardware and reserves to the border. Uh, it seems like um, very uh, apocalyptic loud statements have diminished by all sides. But tensions still remain because Azerbaijan still maintains a significant military presence uh, near uh, southern Armenia and the possibility of a military clash still remains. All of this is taking place against the, back, uh, against the relative background of Armenian government moving closer to the United States, although not necessarily away from Russia, although Russian government and a lot of Russian pundits are perceiving Armenian steps as moving away from the influence of Russian Federation and more towards United States and Turkey. Some of those movements is a reflection of the reality on the ground, but some of those movements are, um, are political and don't necessarily reflect the will of uh, many Armenian people. So there's a possibility of some civil unrest in Armenia should um, should uh, United States or, or, um, or European Union take a greater role in, um, in, in guaranteeing um, the security of Armenia as, as a viable country. But once again, military activities and uh, military clashes have not resumed, but the tensions still remain. Uh, it's going to be fascinating uh, to watch, and it, it would be a very, very interesting realignment given that there are a couple of thousand uh, Russian troops in Armenia. But from, from that standpoint, if they're not really being useful and not keeping the peace and not reopening the Lachin corridor uh, to Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, you, you could argue, right, what, what is the utility of these Russian forces in its borders, right? Because Moscow uh, did get very uh, angry at Yerevan for conducting uh, exercises in Armenia with American troops. Right. And uh, it is perceived in Moscow as Armenia kind of moving away from uh, <clears throat> Russian, um, uh, Russian military security and political orbit. Uh, but uh, 
a lot of these steps aren't necessarily indicative of um, the will of um, many people in the country. And Armenia is a viable democracy. There are many points of view. When Armenia lost Nagorno-Karabakh, there was a lot of uh, demonstration and uh, and calls for Pashinian removal, but that didn't happen. And so actually Armenian leader has demonstrated his uh, ability to survive even the worst uh, crises. And it's possible that he can guide Armenia out of this crisis as well. Uh, whether or not it means closer relations with Russia or closer relations with the United States and Turkey remains to be seen. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. Aside from today's programming, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And, and Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space sponsored our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, last week. Uh, and as this is Monday, joining us today is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely, Bug. Always a pleasure. And hope you guys had a great weekend. We did. We did. So far, so far, so good. A little bit more sailing before haul out, right? Uh, it's the end. Yeah, that was kind of the last really nice. Well, we can go into that, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, we could do an entire sailing program, but I'm not yeah, necessarily yeah, sure yeah. the rest of the audience is as interested in it as we are. Um, since Friday, uh, since Friday's show, uh, the draft text of the House uh, budget uh, was released. It was released last night. Obviously, it goes over to the Senate, uh, and this would be to try to avert a government shutdown. Uh, and we're seeing that there's, in all likelihood, uh, we're headed in that direction. And in fact, guys like Jamie Dimon uh, of uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, clearly a market maker is saying, look, I mean, we're spending money like drunken sailors. This is very problematic. Anybody who thinks that, you know, we're out of the economic woods uh, yet, um, you, you know, uh, that might not exactly be the right way to approach this, to be cautious. Uh, there are others who, you know, accuse him of, look, you may have as a bank bet that a recession is coming. So if a recession doesn't come, it's kind of problematic for you. So he's kind of got to make things go a little bit down. Um, um, what What's your sense uh, about what's in the document and what's next in this uh, fiscal tango? Well, you know, the, first, it's the bill text that got released last night. The House would have to vote on it this week, and then it would go over to the Senate. It, it's not even clear at this point if it can pass the the House. Um, that's going to be to be determined, but but it's, it's not going to pass the Senate, and it's not going to get enacted. So we're kind of back to this, what are we doing here? Um you know, it's 165 pages of bill text. That's long for a continuing resolution. Um, it would provide appropriations through October 30th. Uh, there's no money in there for Ukraine or emergency disaster relief, although there is a carve out for, you know, if, if the federal government could find the money, um, you know, it can carve it out and apply it to emergency relief. Um, you know, defense would be, I guess, at the FY23 level, but then there'd be an 8.1% cut. Um, for non-defense discretionary spending with no real indication as to how that's to be distributed. And then there are large portions of H.R. 2, which is the border security bill that the House passed earlier in the year um, that I don't know why this is still being resurrected other than to try and send it over to the Senate and see if they'll nibble on it. But it's <clears throat> probably, you know, even if it passes the House, it's dead on arrival. 
Um, so, you know, I, and I agree, I think there's a pretty strong consensus now that we are headed towards a shutdown or shutdowns. Um, I just don't know how long and how many, um, but but I would I would bet on that for October. Um, let's talk a little bit about longer term sentiments, right? I mean, anybody who looks at some of these out year plans, given the fiscal situation that we're in, um, you know, has concerns about whether they're executable. Uh, you and I would argue, well, of course, it's absolutely necessary for us to build up the capabilities in order to deter uh, Russia and China. But at the end of the day, it also depends on how much money you have. And if you're out of money, you're out of money. You may want the mansion and the yacht. You might end up with a rowboat and, uh, you know, a small condo. Um, it, at the end of the day, as you're looking out into the future, what does that look like? And don't we end up with some form of sequester or budget caps? Uh, if we're going to take seriously uh, yeah. the the nation's borrowing, well, especially at a time when interest rates have been going up, well, yeah, and the and the other part, Bago, is you know you had a um, inflation report last week that showed a little bit of an uptick in core inflation. You know that excludes food and gas, and obviously anybody who drives a car, you can see the gasoline prices have been going up too. So it, it's kind of the rock and the hard place. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I've written about this. I think this is one of the factors that's really weighed on U.S. defense sentiment this year is um, you've added an overlay of uh, fiscal stringency, um, you know, and arguably some of the stuff in the in the budget is going to get at these bottlenecks that are causing um, inflationary cost pressures. I mean, I, I would really... I was fascinated because last week I was at the Chamber of Commerce Aerospace Summit. And, you know, one of the prevailing tones out of that was, look, we still face labor problems. We still face shortages of people. Um, the supply networks are still a mess <clears throat> in a lot of ways. And so anything to get at those problems <clears throat> might enable industry um, to respond with with greater alacrity, but also to help reduce some of this this cost pressure that I think you know it's not just the defense sector is seeing the broader economy is seeing. Um, the the part about you know and that, that was kind of I wrote about that in my Sunday night note, which is really just this idea that um, that there I think you know okay the Fed's targeting two percent inflation maybe they'll get there you know i could argue maybe not you know if you look we're, we've got a uaw strike now with the auto workers you had a pretty hefty settlement with um the teamsters and um and united parcel service uh there was a poll that came out spirit that, Aero Systems also uh right i mean 30 30 something percent uh wage right. increase although they hadn't had a contract for a couple of years yeah yeah i mean there is a catch-up going on and i think you know look i i get that sentiment you know if you see executives um you know being extremely well paid you know you can look at the way the uaw is framing this thing but the other interesting thing is there was a gallup poll that came out recently that basically uh you know the the respondents the majority i think there was the highest support for unions and union demands in something like 20 or 30 years i mean even longer than that so these these cost pressures are going to persist and you know what i think it raises um about the DOD budget outlook is uh, there. There are obviously multiple ways to handle this. You know, the, the simplest one is just give DOD more money um, to allow it to deal with this. But that may not happen, um, particularly 
in uh, an environment where you still have split party control in Washington, D.C., and where, um, you know, we're, we're kind of back to the debt politics and deficit uh, politic concerns that, um, you know, that birthed the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and then in some ways are at the heart of this um, impasse on the FY24 budget. So, you know, what can what can happen is DOD can either continue doing what it's doing, although I think with the replicator initiative, that was a pretty strong signal that we got to start changing here. Like you've got to start thinking really and, and put, you know, money where your mouth is on low cost autonomous and tribal systems. And um, it, it's not that there's going to be, you know, a, a, an entire shift, but I think at the margin um, you know, that's probably where some of the incremental growth within a flat top line is going to come from. Um, and that that in and of its own right has some pretty interesting implications for who's positioned in what way in the defense sector. I know I was I think you were there, too, but I was at the um, the Air and Space Force Association show last Monday and just walking around the, the floor. You know, it was kind of striking how. The big things that were on display were the um, the Fury uh, Class Five drone right. that Andrel had. Uh, Kratos had, you know, Valkyrie on its stand. <clears throat> um, General Atomics, you know, had had uh, they didn't have models, but a pretty big display on Gambit. You know, some of the things that they're looking at, and you know, there's plenty of um, smaller uh, drones as well too. But I, I just think I just think we're we're kind of at that point where we are going to start to see more change. Um, and, and that has some really interesting contractor implications to start thinking through. Uh, and I uh, would point out, right, I mean, Jet Zero, uh, the decision to give the blended, the Air Force's decision to give the $250 million blended wing body contract uh, to Jet Zero in the prime uh, position and, you know, partnered with Northrop Grumman and RTX, I think was kind of a watershed um, moment in the minds of many, uh, an approach uh, that um, Secretary Kendall has said has been used before uh, and certainly uh, would be used again um, uh, as, as evidence perhaps by Replicator where uh, senior officials have said, you know, that they want non-traditional suppliers to be able to get into the business, to be able to deliver production at scale, for example, a tritable uh, systems, but also do it with the requisite degree of security, right? I mean, we, yeah, they don't want a bodge job, but but somebody who can um, you know deliver five thousand drones that are that are actually secure. Um, well, yeah. so, go ahead. That, that, I was at an AUVSI defense event last Thursday, and you know that was very clear from someone who spoke from DoD that um, you know while there wasn't a lot of new data or insight um, at that event specifically on replicator you know who's going to do it how much when where um you know there were two messages that i thought came out loud and clear one you know how do you integrate a platform like that or platforms like that with the rest of the force um and then the other was well the scaling problem may not be just you know cranking these things out of the factory it's do you have the components the electronic components to make this secure um, cause you obviously don't want to have, you know, five, 10, 20,000 drones out there that can be easily hacked. Or, you know, I think as we're seeing in the, um, in the Ukraine conflict that, that are highly susceptible to electronic warfare jamming, um, uh, you know, uh, deception operations. So 
that may be where the scaling problem exists in the in the eyes of uh, of DoD acquisition and sustainment. Uh, in, in indeed, um, let's talk a little bit about takeaways. Uh, right, you were at the uh, AFA show. You were at the global, uh, uh, the uh, new uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce-led uh, uh, global uh, aerospace summit, uh, as well as AUVSI. What were some of the key takeaways from your standpoint from all of these? Even th- even though you've given f- folks a taste of each of them. Uh, what were some of the things, if you want to recap, that jumped well, out at you? I think, you know, hats off to the chamber because I thought what they really did do was a, a blend of here are the traditional aerospace, you know, airline um, concerns. I didn't, I wasn't able to stay for the entire event, but they did have, for example, a panel speak, you know, boom um, spoke, you know, they're, they're developing a supersonic aircraft. And I thought it was interesting uh, the day that they presented, they also announced a board of military advisors so i think they're they're also working with uh northrop grumman on potential applications for their their aircraft um and you know panels on advanced air mobility commercial space so it's really kind of a much more sweeping view of aerospace and obviously a lot of this just has defense applications when you get into the advanced air mobility products you know there's some really interesting applications in military logistics or cargo um on on the um the new america you know that was that was a much broader view it was their global security forum it was a much broader view on kind of global security challenges you know starting off with climate and migration and you know just this is probably going to get a pro it's going to be a problem that's going to get worse uh before it gets better <laughs> because there really are parts of the world you know if you're a farmer in Somalia, you know, giving you air conditioning just doesn't solve anything. It, you know, some of these right. places are just, they're they're un, going to be uninhabitable and, and people aren't going to have a livelihood there. Um, water is another one that came up. These are longer term problems. I think just thinking about them structurally, what they mean for global security um, is, is really interesting. And I, I, you know, think it's good that they kind of put that up front. Um, but there are some interesting panels too on um the risk of uh something bad coming out of uh of afghanistan again you know that we kind of we pivoted and we're so focused on china and russia and these high unconventional threats that um you know al-qaeda has not been eliminated in afghanistan there's still a risk that the taliban uh again miscalculate and you know we find ourselves with a pretty horrific terror incident that that demands some kind of response um at, one of the um insights that i thought was intriguing was by andrea andrea kendall taylor from center for new american security who spoke on russia and you know she just made the point that um as putin becomes may become more desperate he's more willing to provide technology you know potentially to iran and uh, as you guys probably discussed on the Friday show, the, the visit by um, North Korea's leadership. We, we did indeed. Yeah. So I just think, you know, again, this kind of um, alliance of the pariahs, um, you know, that's usually the way these things work. You could go back to the 1920s and 1930s when uh, 
Germany uh, was uh, isolated, uh, you know, after the defeat in World War One, and they found a partner in the Soviet Union to help develop um, a nascent defense capabilities. So um, pariahs do have a tendency to get together. I, I think it was important that she called that out. And as we've got about a minute left, what should the audience be paying attention to this week? Well, it's UN General Assembly this week. Um, so I think the fact that uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky will be at the General Assembly and then he's in Washington, D.C., making the case again for aid is going to be an, an important issue to watch. Um, the Secretary of the Army and the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army are going to be speaking, I believe, at CSIS this week. And there are a couple, there, there's a House, two House Armed Services Committee hearings, one on um, aid to Taiwan that includes administration witnesses. And then they're doing one. I haven't seen the witness list yet, but it was kind of industry perspectives on the DOD's um, push for innovation. So, uh, and I know there are others, there are going to be a lot of, of side events um, in New York on the UN General Assembly, uh, different aspects of, uh, I know, for example, um, Atlanta Council is doing one Monday night on AI and, and global security. So there, there'll be a lot of pop-up things like that too. Thanks very much, Byron. And already looking forward to the next discussion. Thank you, Bago.